You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 189, The Battle of Monmouth. Last week I covered British efforts to march across New Jersey after evacuating Philadelphia. They were marching to New York City. General Clinton had sent his heavy equipment, civilians, prisoners, and the sick via the fleet, but the bulk of his army had to march overland. The Continentals under Washington sent only a token force to reclaim Philadelphia. Leaving behind his sick and invalids, Washington moved his entire army out of Valley Forge and into New Jersey toward the retreating British column. As the Continental Army began its first major campaign of 1778, it did so with a new second-in-command of the army. Charles Lee had been a British prisoner of war since late 1776. When the British had captured him a few weeks before the Battle of Trenton, the Continental Army was on the ropes. Many expected it to fail at any time. Many were also calling for General Lee to replace Washington as commander of the army. Lee at that time had refused to join his army with Washington's for a final showdown. Instead, he found one excuse after another to remain in northern New Jersey, and it was only after his capture that his army merged with Washington's, providing enough soldiers for the attack on Trenton. During his captivity in New York, Lee's opinion of the Continental Army and Washington's leadership did not improve. Lee had worked on a military strategy, which he shared with British General Howe to help the British win the war. Fortunately for him, the British leadership kept the news of this treasonous activity a secret from the Continentals. As he neared his exchange, Lee began to think about how the Americans might win the war. Again, he had not altered his view that the Americans could never stand up directly against British regulars in the field. Lee proposed that the Americans move most of their civilians and supplies further west, possibly moving Congress to Pittsburgh. Civilians might move further downriver, where they would be under Spanish protection. The Continentals could then begin a total guerrilla war with the British, or what he called Indian-style fighting. Americans would use hit-and-run tactics to keep the British from returning to normal rule, but would avoid any sort of major field battle. Lee had never had a particularly optimistic view of the Continental soldiers. Upon first joining the Continental Army, Lee had to restrain Washington from attacking the British in Boston. Lee won his first independent command in Charleston, South Carolina, only because the officers under his command refused to abandon Sullivan's Island as he had suggested. When he returned to New York City in late 1776, he very forcefully insisted to Washington that they abandon the city before the army was trapped there. 
Now, in many of these strategic choices, Lee was not wrong. His attempts to avoid a major engagement possibly saved the Continental Army from ruin during those early years. Washington's attempts at major battles during Lee's imprisonment, Brandywine, and Germantown did not go particularly well and put the entire Continental Army at risk. Lee, however, did not appreciate that he returned to a very different army in the spring of 1778. Continental officers and soldiers had gained battle experience at Brandywine and Germantown. General von Steuben's training at Valley Forge had professionalized the army and made them more prepared for a European-style battlefield. The army and Congress had come to the consensus following the Conway Cabal that Washington was the right man for the job. They were no longer interested in looking for a replacement. Many of the top generals from the beginning of the war were no longer in positions of influence and power. They had been replaced by newer men, many of whom had been promoted while Lee was a prisoner. Some of the top major generals, including Lafayette, de Kalb, and von Steuben, had not even been in the Continental Army before Lee's captivity. These newer officers had developed a fierce loyalty and trust in Washington as their commander. So when Lee rode into Valley Forge in April 1778, he did not seem much interested in these changes. After meeting with Washington and the military leadership, Lee rode to York, Pennsylvania to consult with President Henry Lawrence and the Continental Congress. Lee told members of Congress that he found the army in a worse situation than he expected and commented that he did not think General Washington was fit to command a sergeant's guard. His behavior indicated that he was still positioning himself to replace Washington as commander of the army. Lee then returned home for a few weeks and only rejoined the Continental Army in late May, only weeks before this campaign began. Maintaining his view that the Americans should not face a major encounter with the British, Lee spoke rather forcefully at Washington's councils of war against such an engagement. Lee also seemed dismissive of young General Lafayette and went out of his way to question General von Steuben's credentials. Lafayette, from his first encounters with Lee, observed that the general hated Washington. At one meeting to discuss an attack on the British column, Lee commented, quote, to risk an action in our present circumstances would be to the last degree criminal. At a later meeting, Lee agreed to a compromise to deploy 1,500 soldiers to harass the British, but not to commit to an all-out battle between the two armies. Washington deployed those soldiers, but the next day deployed another 1,500 soldiers under General Scott. With Dickinson's militia, Washington had over 4,000 soldiers actively attacking the column. Washington has suggested that Lee take command of this advanced detachment. Lee, however, demurred, saying that such a command should go to a young volunteer general, not to the second-in-command of the army. In response, Washington gave command of the advanced force to Lafayette. In giving commands to Lafayette and to General Anthony Wayne over more senior generals, Washington was putting in command those who favored the most aggressive actions against the British. After General Lafayette had already been deployed, Lee returned to Washington and said that he had changed his mind and wanted to lead the advance corps. 
or rather the disgraced Lafayette by switching commanders already in the field, Washington signed another thousand troops under Lee's command and ordered Lee to join his force with Lafayette's. As the senior major general, Lee would then take command of the overall force. Washington's decision, of course, also added to the size of the advance corps, now at around 5,000. On June 27th, Lee caught up with Lafayette at Englishtown, New Jersey. Washington brought the remaining army to Cranberry, about three miles away. He then rode to Englishtown to confer with his generals. He ordered Lee to attack the following morning, but left it to Lee to work out the specifics. Washington then returned to the main army. That afternoon, Lee held his own council of war with Lafayette and other top officers. Lafayette asked about their plan of attack, to which Lee responded that they would just act according to circumstances. Lee had prepared no strategy, nor had he bothered to scout out the terrain. Lee had asked General Dickinson, whose militia were already in the field, to provide intelligence on enemy movements. He also ordered Morgan's riflemen to assist with the attack. However, Lee's written orders to Morgan were vague as to the time and date of the attack. When Morgan received the orders at around 2 a.m. on June 28th, he assumed the attack was scheduled for the morning of June 29th. As the Americans prepared their attack, the British column under General Clinton was trying to find a good defensive position to defend against just such an attack. On June 24th, while still in Allentown, General Clinton rearranged the marching order of the British column. He moved the Hessians, who had been in the rear guard, to the front of the column, and behind them he put his 1,500 supply wagons. Clinton believed that the Americans were probably most interested in capturing the British supplies. He wanted his best combat troops between his wagons and the enemy. He also ordered British and Hessian grenadier companies to march nearest to the wagons. General Cornwallis took command of a division, including most of the light infantry, to defend the column's left flank. That would most likely be where the enemy would strike. Clinton also deployed Lieutenant Colonel John Graves Simcoe to use his provincial Queen's Rangers to scout out enemy positions. As the British marched, they faced continual harassment. Morgan's riflemen took pot shots at the column from the British right flank. Dickinson's New Jersey militia continually raided the column's left flank as the men marched. This forced the British to deploy skirmishers, thus slowing down the column's overall movement. Even worse than enemy fire was the unbearable heat. A Hessian commander reported that nearly one-third of his soldiers had fallen out of line due to heat exhaustion. Carrying 100-pound packs and wool uniforms did not agree well with the soldiers suffering under the blazing summer sun. Many days of rain leading up to this time also resulted in a boom of mosquitoes, which also attacked the column without mercy. Two days after leaving Allentown on the afternoon of June 26th, the British had reached Monmouth Courthouse. Cornwallis's best troops set up camp several miles north of Monmouth, while the large Hessian division camped several miles to the east of Monmouth. Clinton opted to rest his men in camp the next day, June 27th. 
many were in danger of dying from heat stroke, and a brutal thunderstorm overnight had made conditions even more miserable. Instead of trying to move his army forward, Clinton scouted the terrain to make sure he had a good defensive position in case of attack. Swampy areas and ravines protected their flanks and made anything but a direct attack difficult. It was as good a position as any the British would find. Around 2 a.m. on the morning of June 28, Lee received orders from Washington to deploy several regiments to advance on the enemy camp. If the enemy had begun its retreat, the force should attack them. Lee organized a brigade, but could not find a local guide to help his army make the march in the dark. A nighttime thunderstorm also made travel difficult. Lee did not force them to march, but decided he could rely on Dickinson's militia to provide intelligence. At around dawn, Lee received word that the enemy was retreating eastward toward Sandy Hook. Most of Lee's 4,500-man army needed time to form up, so most of them did not leave Englishtown until around 7 or 8 a.m. to begin the four-mile march to Monmouth. Although Lee had not sent out scouts, General Washington had. General von Steuben and Washington's aide, Colonel John Lawrence, spotted the enemy leaving Monmouth that morning. They got so close that the British spotted them, and mistaking Lawrence for Lafayette, they sent troops on horseback to capture the officers. The Americans were able to escape, but only after a daring chase through the woods. Von Steuben sent a messenger to inform Lee that the British had broken camp and were moving east. Having been up all night, von Steuben then caught a short nap in a house near Englishtown. Acting on the intelligence that the British were retreating, Lee hoped to march to Monmouth and capture any rear guard that had been left there to delay an enemy attack. As he marched, Lee received further intelligence that the British had not actually marched off. Rather, they were forming into a line of battle and preparing to engage the American attackers. Now, if this intelligence was correct, Lee would be facing possibly the entire 12,000-man army against his advanced force of 4,500. Lee halted his march while he tried to get better intelligence. Instead, he received contradictory reports. Some said the British were retreating. Some said they had formed a defensive line of battle just outside of Monmouth. Some said the British were attacking and preparing to hit the American flanks as Lee advanced. Lee was understandably irritated by the contradictory intelligence. The terrain over which he was marching was flanked by several ravines and marshy areas. The only way in or out was through a narrow road and bridge. If the British really were preparing to attack, his entire division could be trapped and taken prisoner before they could retreat through this narrow route. Around this same time, Lee received written orders from Washington expressing a desire that Lee attack the enemy as soon as possible and that Washington was bringing up reinforcements. With that news, Lee pressed forward, ordering General Wayne to take the lead position, supported by field artillery. As the force emerged from the ravines into a broader field, the American cavalry spotted Simcoe's rangers, who were mostly mounted on horseback. The Queen's Rangers charged, chasing the American cavalry. When they realized they were also charging into American lines of infantry, the British troops withdrew. 
Wayne ordered his advance guard to pursue the retreating British dragoons. Finding the British rearguard in disorder and confusion, Wayne sent a message to Lee asking him to bring up his entire force to help capture the rear guard. Lee sent a few hundred reinforcements, but did not want to commit his army. As Lee advanced, he discovered Simcoe's rangers had taken a defensive position on a hill. He ordered Wayne to advance on them slowly, while he sent another force around their left flank to get behind them. Lee hoped that he could capture the Loyalists rather than simply chase them away. The British had mostly pulled up and marched away before dawn. The leading division of about 6,000 Hessians and the 1,500 supply wagons had already gotten miles away from the battlefield before the Americans arrived. General Clinton remained with a 4,000-man force near Monmouth. General Cornwallis commanded another 2,000 men nearby. Clinton knew that Lee's advance force was close and that Washington's main force was still several miles away. If the British turned, they might be able to defeat Lee's division in detail before Washington could arrive. At worst, his stand would buy time for his supply wagons to put more distance between them and the enemy. At around 10 o'clock, Clinton ordered Cornwallis's division to about-face and go at a fast march to attack Lee. Clinton's division would back them up. As the summer sun grew close to midday, large numbers of British soldiers dropped from heat exhaustion and passed out. The march, however, did arrive in time. Around noon, Lee's attempt to capture Simcoe's rangers fell apart as the Americans saw Cornwallis's division advancing toward them. Lee ordered General Lafayette to take a small division to outflank the new attackers. Lafayette, concerned about the idea of attacking Cornwallis's division with an inferior force, wrote back to confirm these orders. Lee confirmed and claimed that victory was at hand. Lee then abandoned his attempt to encircle the Rangers and sent more troops to back up Lafayette. While all this was happening in confusion, the center of the American lines, commanded by Generals Scott and Maxwell, began to retreat back to the ravines. One of Lee's aides, Captain John Mercer, spotted the American center in retreat and saw Cornwallis's division advancing on the Americans. He also saw Clinton's division, which he took to be the entire British army, also advancing behind Cornwallis. Captain Mercer reported all this to General Lee. Although Lee had advanced to Monmouth Courthouse, he realized that with Scott and Maxwell's divisions missing, he was facing a much larger army on his own. He opted to pull back himself, later claiming that he was looking for a good defensive ground on which to make a stand. His withdrawal left General Lafayette with about 1,000 men facing Cornwallis's division of 2,000, backed up by Clinton's division of 4,000. When Lafayette realized that all the other Americans were in retreat, he called off his own attack and joined the retreat as well. Lee ordered the Rhode Island regiments to cover the American retreat. However, when the British brought up field artillery, the Rhode Island soldiers turned and retreated with the rest of the army. The entire advance corps, pushed by Cornwallis's division, retraced their steps back through the middle ravine toward the west ravine, where they had marched in earlier that morning. As General Washington's main force approached the battlefield that morning, 
the commander began to receive reports that the American lines were in confusion. He came across the first retreating soldiers, who told him that the army was in fact in full retreat. At first, he thought they must be lying, and ordered them detained. Then, as he encountered more soldiers in retreat, he realized the terrible truth. The Continental Army was in fact in full retreat. Washington spotted General Lee on a nearby hill and galloped up there to demand some answers. When Washington angrily confronted Lee, the general responded in surprise. He stammered that several of his divisions had left the field and contradictory intelligence had created the problems. Besides, Lee continued, he had never thought this attack was a good idea in the first place. Washington had a long reputation for being nearly imperturbable. He never let his emotions show, except on very rare occasions. This was apparently one of those rare occasions. Washington exploded in fury at his second-in-command. One officer later recounted that the stream of curses and invectives that flowed from Washington's mouth caused the leaves on nearby trees to shake. Washington left behind a dazed and flustered Lee and immediately assumed command of the field. He ordered the retreating regiments to turn around. He found General Wayne and ordered him to take 600 men to form a line against the British vanguard, now estimated to be about 15 minutes away. At the same time, Lee had regained his composure and began forming defensive lines. The chagrined officer assured Washington that he would be the last man to leave the field. The advancing British approached Lee's lines. They also took fire on their right flank from Wayne's force in the woods. The British immediately launched a bayonet charge into the woods to disperse Wayne's division. Wayne's men, however, held their position, leading to some of the most brutal hand-to-hand -hand combat of the day. Eventually, though, the Americans did withdraw before the superior force. By this time, Clinton's main force had joined the battle. Lee's defensive line held off a cavalry charge, and seeing that, Clinton personally drew his sword and ordered two battalions of grenadiers to charge the enemy line. The battle descended into chaos as the troops engaged. General Knox brought up several field cannons and devastated the British lines with grapeshot. Colonel Hamilton, Colonel Lawrence, and Lieutenant Colonel Aaron Burr all had their horses shot out from under them during the battle. Washington, who was riding all over the field, issuing orders and commanding movements, had his own horse collapse and die from heat exhaustion. As more British reinforcements joined the fray, Lee found his line threatened on both the right and left flanks. He ordered a slow and orderly withdrawal from the position. As the Americans withdrew, Lee, true to his word, was the last American to cross the bridge. General Clinton, however, was not finished yet. He ordered a division under General William Erskine to push into the West Ravine and attack the Americans as they pulled back. Erskine ran into a larger enemy under General Lord Sterling, and the two sides fired from their lines. Knox once again brought up artillery to support Sterling, while Clinton brought up more reinforcements and British artillery to reply. The result was one of the fiercest artillery duels of the war, lasting for several hours. At around 4 p.m., General Clinton ordered a British withdrawal. Several regiments, however, did not get the orders and tried to hold their ground. 
Washington attacked these divisions, leading to another bloody confrontation as the British units finally pulled back. General Wayne then took about 400 men in pursuit of the retreating British, resulting in more fighting until the British received reinforcements and the Americans had to call off their counterattack against this superior force. As dark fell across the field of battle, both sides settled into camps. Clinton had had enough fighting. Leaving his campfires burning, he marched his men off around midnight and fled the scene. The brutal night march, which continued into the following day, allowed Clinton to catch up with the Hessian division and the wagons. From there, the army moved unmolested to Sandy Hook, arriving on July 2nd. The British Navy transported the army and equipment across the bay into New York City. The British reported 123 killed, about half of those from enemy fire, the other half from heat exhaustion. They also reported 170 wounded and 64 missing. Now, this was almost certainly an undercount. The Americans reported burying four enemy officers and 245 soldiers. The Americans reported 106 killed, about a third of them from heat, as well as 161 wounded and 132 missing. The most important outcome, though, was that the Americans held the field, having faced down the British in a traditional European-style battlefield. Both sides seem to find a new respect for the Continental Army as a result. Next week, the French fleet arrives in America. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to Train Ants, George Davis, and Lewis White for support of this podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. Thanks also to Kurt Avard, author of the book First Do No Harm, for his support at the Robert Morris Circle level. I also thanked Robert Hunter last week for his support at the Robert Morris Circle, but Robert also opted to double down and join the Hamilton Club. I'm most grateful for that increased support. Thanks also to Tommy Knecht and William Coombs for their longtime support on Patreon. 
everyone who can pitch in to help cover my costs helps keep this podcast free for everyone else who can. I also want to give a shout out to Travis and Cammie Gerber and family. I had a great time on Monday at the American Revolution Museum with your family. I hope you enjoyed it too. This week I covered the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse, which turned out to be the last major battle fought in the North. It was also one of the longest battles, with fighting starting near dawn and running until after dark. My episode ran a little long this week, and I didn't even get a chance to mention Molly Pitcher, a.k.a. Mary Ludwig Hayes. She was a camp follower who was married to a Pennsylvania artillery soldier, and according to a story by Joseph Plum Martin, Molly provided water to the soldiers on that hot day of battle. And after her husband collapsed, possibly due to heat exhaustion, Molly took his place at the cannon and allegedly had an enemy cannonball pass right between her legs. I wish there was a good book about Molly Pitcher that I could recommend. There are probably more than a dozen children's books, but I don't know of any serious work, probably because there just isn't enough written detail known about her life to justify one. That, unfortunately, is a sad reality for many very interesting people from this era who never rose to prominence during their lives. As a result, I couldn't even find enough to justify a whole episode about her. The other important outcome of Monmouth was that it would lead to the end of General Charles Lee's military career. I think this is a really big deal, and I plan to cover Lee's court-martial in a future episode. We are seeing a much more professional Continental Army. Soldiers are serving long multi-year enlistments. They're getting formal training in European battlefield tactics and their officers are becoming more experienced and settled in their commands. The Battle of Monmouth itself did not really have much impact on anything. As General Lee pointed out before the battle, the British were retreating to New York City anyway, and that is exactly what they did after the battle. The British then pretty much ended offensive operations in the North, not because they admitted to any fear of the Continentals, but because London ordered large chunks of the British Army to be redeployed to other parts of the empire to fight the larger war with France. Monmouth, however, did put an end to the idea that Continentals could not hold ground in traditional European-style battles against regulars. The only other major battle where that had happened up until this point was Saratoga, and some regarded that as a fluke. Many British leaders credited it to the leadership of General Horatio Gates, who had, of course, been a British officer for many years in the regular army before the war. I suppose General Lee, who of course was another former British officer, could have gotten credit and greatly enhanced his own reputation if he had managed to win the battle, but his unceremonious retreat and the fact that General Washington had to take over mid-battle rightfully denied Lee that honor. There are a number of good books devoted to the Battle of Monmouth, My book recommendation this week is Fatal Sunday, George Washington, The Monmouth Campaign, and the Politics of Battle, by Mark Lender and Gary Wheeler Stone. It's a well-researched, well-written, and detailed account not only of the day of the battle, but the events surrounding it as well. The book itself is over 600 pages. Mark Lender had already retired from a career in academia when this book was published in 2016. He's written a number of other great books about the Revolution, including one about the Conway Cabal that I recommended in an earlier episode. 
Gary Stone is a retired Park Service historian who worked at the Monmouth Battlefield State Park for many years. Although this book is only a few years old, it's already pretty hard to find in paper form. It's also available, though, as an ebook and an audiobook. If you want to read more about Monmouth and if you can find the book, give Fatal Sunday a try. If reading a 600 page book is not your thing and you still want to learn more, you're going to want to look at my online recommendation this week. Mark Lender gave a talk about Monmouth on History Author Talks. The one hour presentation, along with Christian McBurney, who wrote the book about Charles Lee's subsequent court martial, is freely available on YouTube. As always, you can search for the video on YouTube, or you can simply use the direct link on my blog for this episode. Go to blog.amrevpodcast.com for more details. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.